We continue our Exodus series today and in preparation for what we're looking at this morning. It's just an amazing passage. I was looking at cartoons, because that's how you prepare. And uh, so I was looking at a cartoon of uh, Moses, depicted Moses holding two stone tablets, two of the ten, the ten Commandments. And in front of him, all the people in front, and there's a stack of other stone tablets in front of him, and a line of people in robes and ties, kind of updating the Israelites. And Moses is saying to the people as they pass to pick up their copy of the Ten Commandments. So yeah, take it home, look over it, and if anybody has any feedback, my door's always open. And then another one had Moses on top of the mountain holding the two stone tablets and saying to the big cloud. So commandments, okay, that's fine, but, but why not jazz it up again a little bit and call it the top ten no-nos? And still another cartoon had Moses at the base of the mountain. The golden calf is looming in the background. The people are lost in this drunken debauch. They're looking over their shoulders at him, and he's responding, well, actually, they are written in stone. Like, they're in stone. Um, still another one had Moses at the mountain, big crowd of people in front of him, and one guy raises his voice and goes, who says? Like, who says we have to do that? And uh, I clearly had too much fun looking at these cartoons this week, but, but they, they really hit close to home, don't they? They hit close to home in our society, in our own hearts. They, they express various slants of our culture's discomfort or dismissal of the Ten Commandments, uh, from doubting their source and authority, to, to mocking their perceived negativity, to disregarding them as these kind of backwards buzz killers. Um, Western culture finds the Ten Commandments as offensive, increasingly so, just offensive. Um, they counter our commitment to philosophical pluralism that with the, with the truth that there really is one God. They curb our commitment to, to tolerance as a virtue by claiming that there really is such a thing as right and wrong. They undermine our preoccupation with self-esteem by saying, you really aren't good, like you're not good. Our culture bristles, bristles at that. Think about your own heart, it bristles. And for that reason, our culture has distanced itself from the Ten Commandments. Even, you know, it has to motivate the decision to remove the display and the teaching of Ten Commandments in our schools and in many of our public spaces. But even more unsettling than that, you know, that's the culture at large. Even more unsettling is what Packer says back in 2007. He said that even gospel-believing churches back in the 50s and 60s quit teaching through the Ten Commandments such that he doubted back then if church members below the age of 40 could even recite all 10 commandments. Other studies have showed up-to-date statements very similar to that. Uh, but that's not us, right? That's not us, right? Um, we teach the catechism. It's in the catechism. Uh, I know Marian teaches it in her Sunday school class. We speak about it some. We recite it sometimes on the Lord's Day. We had an adult Sunday school class on the Ten Commandments, but I was convicted uh, that I've never actually preached all the way through command by command. 
So we're going to do that, Lord willing, if it gives us grace over the next 10 weeks or so. What I want us to get today, it's going to be an introduction, and uh, there's going to be much more to say even by way of introduction. What I want us to get today, this overwhelming sense that the Ten Commandments are beautiful. They're beautiful. And sometimes we lose sight of that as a people, that the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law, oh, how I love it, (laughs) is to be our attitude. Like we wake up, I love it. Now, is that our heart, more than being able to recite the Ten Commandments, is that our heart with respect to the Ten Commandments? I love it. All right, so let's read, let's read Exodus uh, 20, verse one to verse 21. Hear God's word. And God spoke all these things saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but this good word, which is a gospel word, endures forever. Thanks be to God. So 
Again, I want us to see the beauty of the Ten Commandments in our text today uh, when they were given to Israel and as the rest of Scripture unfolds them. Uh, And so I have a whole lot of points. In fact, I have ten. Ten points why God's law is beautiful. We're going to go really fast. So the first, they're beautiful. The Ten Commandments are beautiful because God speaks them. Verse one, and God spoke all these words. God spoke all these words. Second Timothy three, all scripture is God breathed. All scripture is, there's no secondary scripture. It's all scripture. And yet, here God directly speaks the 10 commandments to Moses and all Israel. They actually heard the booming voice of God, Exodus 19.9. They hear God speak. And by that, God reinforces the authority of these 10 commandments. Nobody could go to Moses and say, this is just Moses' preferences, what Moses wants to do. His little project for us now that he's got us stuck in the middle of the wilderness. They're God's commands with his authority. They actually heard the voice of God speaking them. And additionally, Exodus 19, 19 says, Moses spoke to God and God answered Moses in thunder. I mean, appreciate that. God is conversing with a man. And all Israel gets to listen in and overhear that conversation. It's a personal relationship. In any relationship, what we most want is good communication, and you know how difficult that is. And yet God is communicating with a man. And he wants Israel to know he's communicating with them and that Moses speaks to him and God speaks back. And to even underscore this even more, in the Ten Commandments, they're all in second person singular. Which just as a way to say, these aren't these blanket overarching commands for a nation only. These are commands that God speaks to you individually and personally because he has an individual, personal relationship with you. Through Moses, Israel is saying, God knows me and I know God and this is his will for me in the relationship that he established with me. Second, they're beautiful because God reveals himself to us in them. Uh, The Ten Commandments aren't just an arbitrary code. They're not a value statement on the wall of some business or entity. They're not just a, a record of conduct out there, abstracted. The Ten Commandments reflect the very nature and character of God. We look at the Ten Commandments, we're looking at who God is. They express and exhibit the very being of God to us. We look through them, we know more of who God is. They're personally given 
God stands behind them. They display the will of the God who is utterly holy, who manifests himself in thunder and lightning, smoke and fire, trumpet and earthquake. Verse one, I am the Lord, goes back to Exodus three, I am who I am. I am self-existent, the source of everything. They display the will of the God who is full of grace, who visits his people in suffering, who redeems his people from bondage, who cares for them in the wilderness tenderly, who manifests himself to them in a veiled form, a cloud, so he doesn't disintegrate them by his presence because he wants to know them and wants them to draw near. Um, who clearly shows himself as their God. Verse one, I am the Lord. It's the covenant, personal name for God. I'm the one who saved you and takes care of you. Um, he's the God that awes us with his holiness and attracts us with his loving kindness. This is his will for us. Sinclair Ferguson makes a wonderful comment when he says, the core of legalism is when you and I disconnect, separate the law of God from the person of God. Now it takes some thinking. But you remember in the garden that the serpent tempts Eve and he casts God in a suspicious light. He's not out for your good, he's holding back on you He's restrictive and stingy. And at that point, he has her unsettled and breaking the command looks pretty good. We inherit that mental bent. You got it, I've got it. That something doesn't please us or we, or we question it and we immediately question, is God even for me? Legalism is when we disconnect God's law from God himself and we have this mentality toward God that he whose favor has to be earned. And if that's our view of God, then the law now becomes this bargaining chip where we can elicit his favor if we just measure up a little better. But God's saying the law just expresses me, my holiness and my grace for you, and I want to know you. What do we learn about God in the Ten Commandments? If we look through them to say, okay, this expresses your nature, what are you communicating to me in your nature? Well, just real quick, just think of a few things. The first commandment, don't worship other gods, shows that God is jealous for your affection. It's like a good marriage when the spouses will not tolerate anyone else in the marriage. And God says, I want your affection. How about the second? No, don't create some image. God is spirit. Don't confuse me and bring me down to some created thing and try to mold me after your own likes and dislikes. Or the third, don't speak my name in vain. Like, I am honorable, God's saying. I'm not to be disrespected. Or the fourth, to Keep the Sabbath. What does that tell us about God? Well, I'm sovereign over your life. I'm sovereign over Monday and Tuesday 
and all that pressure you feel at work. And so you can rest on the Sabbath. Because I care about you. Take a rest. The fifth, what does it tell us? It says that I'm the source of authority. You obey your parents and those leaders over you, but not ultimately for them, but because behind them is me. You submit to me. And I'm out for your good. And the sixth, what does that tell us about God that we can't kill people? That I'm the God of life, abundant life. That's what I have in store for you. Promote it. The seventh, that we can't commit adultery. What does that say? Well, I am faithful and pure, and I want you to be faithful and pure. How about the eighth, that we can't steal? Well, God's saying, I'm the provider. I really will provide for you. What about the ninth, that we can't lie? Well, what does that say? I'm truthful, and I'm trustworthy. How about the 10th, that we can't covet? God's saying, I'm, I'm satisfied with who I am and what I'm doing, and we should be, you should be content in me and how I am with you and for you. I mean, it tells us so much about God as we look through them. Think about that. Well, about the third, they're beautiful because God shows us how we're designed to be in the law. God shows us how we're designed to be. When we say the law reveals God's character to us, it also implies that the law shows us who we're designed to be since you and I are images of this God. God says, be holy because I am holy. You're my image bearers. You're supposed to reflect who I am because that's your design. That's how you function. That's human flourishing. This reflects how I designed you. Well, fourth, they're beautiful because God shows us how a society is designed to be. And so this just grows out of the first because a society is just a collection of a bunch of individuals living together. Exodus 19 through 24 is God constituting the people of Israel his nation. It builds on prior covenants, but God adds to this now that he's brought a whole nation, a million, a million and a half, two million people to the foot of a mountain. He's about to send them into the promised land to make them a country, a nation. And he officially binds them together in a covenant. He's forming a society here, a nation here. And he wants this new society to look like this. This is their charter. What would it be like if we lived in a nation that interacted like this? Where people treated each other this way. Where marriages and and family function this way. Where our government and our institutions operated this way. And that's what God's doing for them And just the how they would have received this, far from being constricting and confining and limiting and curbing their freedom, they've come out of slavery and bondage. They've seen what it looks like when a society doesn't have these 10 commandments. They look at God's 10 commandments, this charter for their nation, they're saying, this is liberty, I want this. 
They came out of a place where Pharaoh says, I have complete authority over you. You will do what I say. And now God's saying, no, he's an authority, but I'm the real authority. Um, Pharaoh said, I'm gonna work you as hard as I want until you die. I'm gonna get every ounce of strength out of you. I don't care anything about you. You're a means of production. God's saying, no, I love you. I'm providing for you. And I want you to rest and enjoy the fruits of your labor. Pharaoh said, I can, just, I can meddle in your family any way I want to because it belongs to me. And God says, no, the family is sacred, is to be respected and protected. How would they have received that? It just blows me away to think of a people that went through what they went through and they get to receive that charter for a nation. Fifth, they're beautiful because they're grounded in redeeming grace. And that may be the best point because God did not show up in Egypt with his people in grinding poverty and slavery and call them together at a town hall meeting and say, I'll negotiate a little contract with you. If you'll obey these 10 commandments to my standards, then I'll release you from bondage to Pharaoh and take you to another country. That's not how we did it. It's so important that we not just know that intellectually, but get that deep, deep in our hearts. He did not do that to them. The law was never the means by which they were going to get redeemed. The law was never given so that they would be accepted with God. The law God gave them was given to the people he had already redeemed by sovereign grace without any merit and effort on their part. They are already accepted by him and he entrusts them with his good and perfect will for them as redeemed, welcomed, embraced, accepted people to live out in gratitude to God. Paul speaks of the works of the law and the, the, the faith in the gospel. He speaks of law and grace in an oppositional, a contrary manner. But what Paul's getting at is the principle of works righteousness versus the principle of grace. And if you disconnect the law from this context of redemption, then you make it something it was not intended to be, a way to get accepted with God. The principle of works and the principle of grace is diametrically opposed. But law is not opposed to grace. Law is an aspect of grace in so many ways. They go together. We see that in the chapter 19. You remember God rescued them on eagle's wings, brought them to himself, and then say, if you obey and keep my covenant, you'll be a treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and yet they're already a treasured possession or he wouldn't have gone and got them. And so what's God saying there? It's grace upon grace. I saved you by grace, but you know what? As you try to please me, as you try to keep my covenant, as you try to live cherishing me and living in my love, I'm gonna add even more grace so that you will enjoy and experience your relationship with me even more. 
you can become more like me and you can enter more fully into the, the abundant blessings of the covenant I have for you. Not only is it grounded in grace, but as we, in our bumbling way, works in progress, seek to please God in the law, he adds grace to it. Six, they're beautiful because they advance the covenant of grace. They're beautiful because they advance the covenant of grace. Um, Covenant theology, it's a wonderful thing. It starts right at the fall, a covenant of grace. Abraham, 400 years prior to the Exodus, God says, unconditionally, I'm gonna rescue my people. Abraham believes God and he credits him as righteousness. Justification by faith alone, all the way back at Abraham. Some have looked at Moses where God gives an external stipulation of his will and says, why did Israel get into that covenant? Isn't that retrogressive or going backwards behind Abraham's covenant? But we look at that and we say, absolutely not. The covenant with Abraham is built on the covenant, excuse me, the covenant with Moses is built on the covenant with Abraham. That's why the preamble is so important. I've already redeemed you. How do you receive that? By faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, let me tell you my will for you as my redeemed people. Um, It builds on the covenant of grace. How? Abraham didn't have an external summary of God's will like this. That came under Moses. And you know in any relationship you're with, whether it's a husband, a wife, a friendship, parent and child, you just want to know what the other person desires. Sometimes it's difficult to know what we want. Intimacy is furthered by us expressing our desires and wishes and needs. Moses advances over Abraham in that God says, you wanna love me? These are my wishes and my will. Grow to please me and grow closer to me through them. It's an advance over Abraham. Furthermore, oftentimes we view the 10 commandments as two tables in which the first table has the first four commandments the second table with the next six. And they're presented that way when they're displayed. There's truth to that organization. But remember, this is a covenant ceremony here. And in the ancient world, when two parties made a covenant, they wrote down stipulations. We're gonna agree to this. And so God's given the stipulations in this covenant. But he gives two copies. Because in ancient covenants, both parties kept a copy. So they'd know what the other party demands. The interesting thing here. So therefore, in the tables, there are a full copy on both tables. But the interesting thing is, when God gives Moses the plan for the Ark of the Covenant, he charges him to put both copies in the Ark of the Covenant. And what that means is, yes, you're supposed to obey these, but the real guarantor and keeper of this covenant is me. It's grace all over it. Seven, they're beautiful because of how in-depth and comprehensive they are. Um, You can't look at them in a superficial way. You can't compartmentalize them. You can't narrowly circumscribe them. 
They're concise, yet they're penetrating, and they're pervasive in the application. And so a few rules, just to think about this week as we jump in next week. There's the rule of love. Matthew 22, the teacher says, what's the first and greatest commandment? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The 10 commandments express love for God and love for neighbor, overwhelmingly positive and rich and profound. Furthermore, it shows that love for God comes first. And in the covenant, we know we can't love God unless he first loved us. But then the six flow out of love for God to where we really know if we love God as we're loving our neighbor as well. And we can't love our neighbor unless we're loving God. It's all intertwined in the 10 commandments. The second rule is the rule of scripture. Again, all scriptures God breathed, therefore all scripture interprets the 10 commandments and so fleshes them out in a beautiful and rich and abundant way. We think especially of the way Jesus does it in the Sermon on the Mount or the way they're gonna do it at VBS this week with the fruit of the Spirit. That impinges upon the 10 commandments. Third is the rule that the negative implies the positive. It's, it's not just a negative list of no-nos. Uh, the negative form of the commandments is actually far from restrictive. It actually frees up more positive. See, if God had had to stipulate positively every duty you were supposed to do, imagine how long those commands would have been and how restrictive it would have been. God models the commands given in the garden when he looked at Adam and Eve and says, don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the negative. But the reason for the negative underscores the positive. You can surely eat from all the trees in the garden. It's to say, everything is yours, just don't do this one. Overwhelmingly positive through a negative command. It's in the same way. God's saying, don't do this. Why? Because there's a host of positives that I want you to promote and cultivate in your life. Just see how it works out for the six through 10. Don't kill because life is sacred. Don't commit adultery because marriage is sacred. Don't steal because possessions are sacred. Use them for God's glory. Don't lie because truth is sacred. Promote the truth. Don't covet because God's providence is sacred. Trust and nurture your relationship with him. Fourth is the rule that of the outside and the inside. It's not just observable behaviors. It goes to speech and heart. And that comes out even in the Ten Commandments themselves. Commands one and two deal with our thoughts, how you regard God. Command three deals with our words. How do you speak about God? Command four deals with our deeds. Are you gonna rest? Then you flip that as you move forward. Commands six through eight deal with deeds. Don't murder, don't commit adultery. Commands nine deals with words. Don't bear false testimony. Command 10 deals with thoughts. Don't covet. It's comprehensive covering thoughts, words, and deeds. And Jesus just stresses that in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't murder, don't call somebody a fool, and don't get angry sinfully. It's all sin. And we go to the rule of the greater to the lesser. 
You look at the Ten Commandments like a mountain. Each command is the top of the mountain, and yet each command drags with it a host of other lesser sins that contribute to it. Therefore, again, Jesus could say, don't murder, but he says also, don't speak hatefully and harbor hateful thoughts. They're lesser down the mountain, but of the same category of murder, the greater and the lesser. Just in themselves, the commands are amazing and to be marveled at. Then eight, that leads us to eight. Uh, They're beautiful because they expose how sinful we are. Is that beautiful? Is it beautiful to look at that heart of yours? For me to really look at my heart, is that beautiful? It seems ugly to me. But see, in grace, that's beautiful. And take a deep breath right there because the evil one comes at you pummeling you with guilty, shameful thoughts. But the law is given in the context of grace. Paul thought he was a good dude because he was better than everybody else. And yet then all of a sudden, that 10th commandment arrested his thoughts. And he finally looked at that 10 commandment and says, oh my word, I am full of coveting. And he was just sunk into conviction. But you know what that did? Is it prepared him for Jesus to show up and say, Paul, don't you know, I suffered for all of that polluted sin to give you a righteousness you can't fabricate on your own. And that's beautiful. You see, the law is like a Coke. And if you take a Coke and and, and shake it up, it's gonna just explode with fizz. And when we have the law, it shakes up that sordid heart we have and shows us what's in there. The law is like a hornet's, the law is like bumping against a hornet's nest or stepping on an anthill or turning on the lights in your kitchen and seeing a roach on the floor. It just exposes everything and excites everything because you bristle at God's authority. But you know what? It's beautiful. And you and I invite that because we know we're embraced by Christ. The more we see our sin, the more we love him. And that leads to point nine. They're beautiful because they point to Christ, our need for Christ. You see, Romans eight says, the law can't, the law can't produce what the law requires. It just has no power in itself. So it frustrates us. Furthermore, Romans 8 says, the law kills you. It condemns you. It shuts your mouth before the judgment seat of God. I mean, it does all that. But it does all that to say, I need Jesus. I need him. I really need him. And that's the core of the Christian life. And 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 it's so beautiful here because the people look at all this and they go, God, quit speaking to me. Talk to Moses. And what that shows us is the people are getting trained to see we need a mediator before a holy God. We need Jesus. You see, Jesus fulfills all of it, thought, word, and deed, 
loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbors. How on earth? Staggering to see what he did in a fallen world. Jesus atones for all the ways you rebel and fail that law. Everything, every nuanced, twisted thought and emotion you have. Like he paid for that at the cross of Christ. All of it. Jesus empowers you to want to live and esteem this law. Like Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is, I'm gonna put my spirit in you and he's gonna write my law in your heart. And you know what, that what you couldn't do, you're gonna be able to start being able to do it. You're not trying and failing, you're being trained. And God takes all that muddled up obedience that's mixed up with a bunch of other emotions and he actually loves it. He views you as a little child learning to walk and just welcomes it and gives you more grace to keep at it. That's why Psalm 119 says, I love your law. What you require, you're given me by grace. And finally, they're beautiful because they present who the Holy Spirit is shaping you to become. Because that's what he's about. He's shaping you that way. You know why? Because one day, you're gonna stand before Jesus and when you see him as he is, you can become like him. And you would have already been trained to appreciate and love what he's gonna give you perfectly and fully in your glorified state. You're being trained for the new heavens and new earth where this is just ordinary living and we treat each other this way and love God this way and love others this way. What is that gonna be like? Doesn't that whet your appetite for where you're heading? And even now, you get to make some little progress towards that. Oh, how I love your law. May it be beautiful to us. And so see, Israel looks at God and they're terrified. And Moses says, don't fear. But then Moses says, but fear. Did you see that? There's a fear you shouldn't have. And that is terror of the holiness of God. Because you also know that God who is utterly holy, who would level you to the floor if you were to stand before him, is the God who takes you by his hand and loves you in Christ. You don't have to be terrified of him. At the same token, you do need to fear, but that fear is different. It's reverence and wonder and awe that such a God who redeemed me is a God who wants me to look more like him all the way to glory. And may that be the case. God's people said, amen. Let's stand.